Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. As student pastor, Justin Stevers shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. I have an ambitious goal tonight, and it is to preach 40 verses in 30 minutes, or your money back guaranteed. So, I don't have time to dilly-dally up here. Uh, I want to jump into it. But uh, allow me to dilly-dally for one second. Um, if, if you want, go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. This has been a passage um, ever since I, I was like, man, I want to go through 1 Corinthians. I thought it'd be edifying. This is the chapter that I was nervous of. This is the chapter that I didn't want to touch. Um, this is a chapter that can get awkward. Um, so I decided let's go ahead and knock it all out in one sweep. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's going to be an awesome time. Uh, this is God's word to us. Paul today is giving every individual here in this room, he's giving every individual, no matter what season of life you're in, he is addressing you specifically today. And Paul is speaking to everyone who is married, who was married, or who isn't married, which I think that covers the basis on all of us today. I think uh, Paul, Paul, old and young, he is speaking to all of us. So like I said, 40 verses in 30 minutes, someone start the timer. Uh, if we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm not going to read all 40 verses. That would take the 30 minutes. I'm just going to read one key verse, verse 7. So if uh, you have your Bible, if you're open there, let's go ahead and stand together as we read God's word. And I think verse 7 is kind of the key thought that Paul has here in this passage, and he elaborates verse 7 in some of the uh, following verses, 17 through 24. But I think this key thought at the end of verse 7 um, is, is what this passage revolves around. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, For I would that all men were even as I myself. For I wish that, that all men were like me, Paul says, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I wish that all were like me, but every man has a different gift. That's the thought tonight. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Lord, we give you this time. We want to glorify you. We want to honor you. God, you alone are worthy of our praise. You're worthy of our attention and our affection. And Lord, I pray we will make you the focus, the center, and the core of our life because you alone will give us full and eternal joy and you alone are worth it. So God, be with us tonight. Speak to us through your word and let us live your word out. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So the main takeaway tonight is that we 
must be faithful in our gifts and our callings of marriage and singleness. So we see three requirements of being faithful in the gift of marriage and three requirements of being faithful in the gift of singleness in this passage. So it's, he, he sprinkles bits and pieces there uh, of, of both categories throughout the passage, but, but an easy breakdown, a broad breakdown is 1 through 24, we're going to talk about the gift of marriage, and then 25 through 40, the gift of singleness. So first, Paul encourages us to be faithful in your calling, be faithful in the gift of marriage. So marriage is a uniquely explosive topic. There are different thoughts, feelings, philosophies, uh, politics get tangled into it. It's a potentially awkward topic, and it's a very emotional topic to a lot of people. People have all kinds of different experiences with marriage. There are sin-filled marriage that brings hurt and trauma. And even the, the best marriages will end too soon in death. So why is this topic so emotional, so physical, so spiritually explosive? It's because this is the most intimate, most vulnerable thing you can do with your life is to fully give yourself to another human. It's a it's the most vulnerable position you can ever put yourself in. And marriage is giving all of oneself emotionally, physically and spiritually to someone else. And you and I know that every person is a sinner and every person is very capable of letting us down. So that's why when we bring up marriage, there, there can be baggage that, that comes up with this topic. So why do we put up with it if, if we can so easily get hurt by it? Well, because we've been created by God to glorify him in the gift of marriage. He made this gift for our flourishing, for our good, and for his glory. So we're going to take a quick look at at kind of the whole picture of marriage that the Bible presents, um, a biblical perspective on marriage, and I, I don't have the time to cite verses and read all the verses, but uh, if you have questions, come talk to me later, and I'll give you a marriage seminar, 10 Steps to a Perfect Marriage. <laughs> so by definition, marriage is a lifelong covenant, a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman before God to cherish, to love, to serve one another as one new body, as one new flesh. The two individuals, they come together and they become one. And you can't separate these two. You, you can't think of one without the other. And there are key purposes of biblical marriage. And I'm, I'm sure we can think of a ton of purposes of marriage, but to boil it down, I've, I've got five that all start with a P. Um, there is partnership that marriage is built for. It's uh, not good for man to be alone, right? God created a helper to come alongside Adam and to complement him, to not compliment him like, hey, Adam, your shoes look great today. 
No, to complement, to, to come beside and build up. To, to maybe part, parts where he's weak at, she will be strong at and help him. Parts where she's weak at, he will be strong at and help her. To complement one another. To partner with him for their flourishing. That's, that's what marriage was built for, that partnership. Marriage is also built for the pleasure that comes with marriage. It's not just a deep friendship, a deep companionship in partnering together, but the, the physical act of marriage is a good gift of God that should be enjoyed within his guidelines. And again, it's for our flourishing. And throughout the, the Bible, we see that, that this is a good gift of God when appropriately in pers- put in perspective. And this pleasure is to normatively lead to blessing. So we've got, we've got partnership, we've got pleasure, and we've got procreation. That's a good word. Procreation. Marriages are built to build families. And I have a, a soapbox that I might have time to get on. But we live in a culture that hates life. We live in a culture that hates children. In the Bible, children are always mentioned as blessings. Always. Yes, blessings can be difficult. It's not always sunshines and rainbows, right? Like, it's going to be hard work. But the Bible always mentions children as blessings. Our world thinks that children are burdens. They get in the way of my life. They get in the way of my career. They're, they're, they're a burden to be solved and, and controlled. And this mentality hasn't just crept into the church. I think it's taken over the church. This mentality that, that's rooted in, in selfishness. I'm, I'm going to enjoy my life, so I don't want kids to slow me down. Now, I know there's other factors, but, but the, that mentality specifically is a worldly mentality that goes against the teachings of the Bible all the way from Genesis when God created Adam and Eve and told them to be fruitful and multiply. That was a pre-fall command that applies to Adam and Eve as humanity. That applies to you and me. And part of a marriage, again, by definition and design, is to give yourself, sacrifice yourself to another person. And those two people who who sacrifice themselves together are also to sacrifice themselves to create life, to raise up another human, raise up others to grow in the Lord to live for him and to worship God. There's no room for selfishness in this union. But that's all the time I have on that soapbox. Marriage is also for our purity. How sanctifying is it to know and to be known fully? How sanctifying is it to have someone see every area where you fall short. 
And you can't fool your spouse as easily as you can fool a coworker. You can't fool your spouse as easily as you can fool another church member. And that should stir us to grow, to have a desire to grow. You have a full-time, if you're married, you have a full-time accountability partner to spur you on in the Lord, to confess your sins to, to apologize and ask for prayer together to grow with. And as we see in, in, in verse 5, having a healthier relationship, uh, marriage helps deter sinful desires. It also helps escalate areas of sin in our life, but now I have a teammate to kill that sin with. And last, marriage is a portrayal of the gospel. It is a picture of the gospel. The gospel that, that God loved us and created us to be in a relationship with him, but we rejected him. He created us to be with him, but we have sinned against him, becoming his enemies and deserving death. We have rebelled, but God loved us. He loved us so much, the, the rebellious, the, the one who's just running away and away, he pursues us like a faithful groom. He pursues us and he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, to die on the cross as a substitute for sinners, taking the punishment on his shoulders, and then raising from the grave, defeating sin and death, so that we can be restored to him. Not only restored to him, we can be adopted into the family of God. The, the, the New Testament calls us, if you belong to Christ, you are part of the church, which is the bride of Christ. You are his bride whom he loves. Amen. If you give your life to Christ. And that's a portrayal of the gospel. If, if, if you haven't given your life to Christ, step into that relationship. It is only good. And a godly marriage shows this glorious truth. So, so those are five purposes of marriage. And, and this foundation isn't universally shared. Here in the church of Corinth, located in a very religiously and ethnically diverse city, a huge global industrial market, this cosmopolitan city, there are all kinds of distortions of marriage here in the city of Corinth. And really, the city of Corinth sounds a lot like America today. And just like we see in our culture today, there are distortions of marriage. In this church, you would see maybe five common distortions of marriage. There, there, were, there were four Greek distortions, four marriages in Greek culture. There was slave marriage. This was marriage um, where a master allowed some slaves in the culture to be married, and this was seen as a temporary assignment. This was seen uh, as long as the master thinks that this is okay, as long as the master doesn't maybe send me off to another place, okay, we'll be married for a few years. Well, that's a distortion. There's common law marriage. If in, in the culture, in the 
Greek culture, the Corinthian culture here at the time, if you lived for someone for a year, you were considered to be married to them. There was marriage by sale. Uh, a father would sell his daughter's hand in marriage uh, for the right price. And then there was this culturally elite form of marriage. It was called patrician marriage. That's a good word. Where it was basically just a contract uh, to produce an heir to whatever, the, the, the estate, the business, whatever it was. But it wasn't built on love. It wasn't even built really on commitment and faithfulness because they were kind of expected to, you know, stay unfaithful in the marriage. It, it was just a contract. So those were four distortions. And then you have also the Jewish view of marriage that would be here present in the church in Corinth at this time. And the Jewish view of marriage had the right answers. But as we see here, they probably had the wrong emphasis to, in their heads, if you weren't married, then you were incomplete. If you weren't married, then you were actually inferior to those who were married. And, and Paul sees all these distortions, all these angles, and he does a great job in this chapter to gently combat those and to align us with the truth of biblical marriage. And with, with all this baggage, he says we need to be faithful to this biblical gift of marriage. In verse 1, Paul says, now, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. And then some of your Bibles might go on and might have a quotation mark after that. And what, what Paul is, is saying is, you wrote these things to me, now I'm going to answer these things. So there was probably an earlier letter that Paul has, and they just sent him a bunch of questions. And he's addressing the issues that the Corinthians sent him. And the first principle that Paul gives to answer their, their questions on marriage, the first principle Paul gives to the married is that marriage requires self-giving. In, in last chapter, the, the end of last chapter, chapter 6, Paul says, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Well, here, Paul is almost building onto that. You are not your own. You belong to the Lord. Also, you belong to your spouse. Something that is groundbreaking in this passage is the, the reciprocal nature of this relationship. In verse 4, if the, the reader in Paul's day, when Paul says, the wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. Paul says, the wife is not, does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And in that day, the readers would have said, duh, obviously, Paul, I'm a man. She's a woman. Obviously, I have power over her body. That's not controversial at all. When, when the woman gets married, she yields authority over her body to her husband. 
But Paul doesn't stop there. The next line would have rocked their world. And Paul continues and he says, and likewise, also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. The Greek men did not believe that their wives had authority over their bodies. And it would have sounded absurd to them to hear what Paul just wrote. But Paul is adamant that marriage is not one-sided. It requires just as much self-giving from a man as it requires from a woman. Marriage only works properly when both partners give themselves fully to the other. Both, 100%, preferring the other to themselves and looking to serve them in any way that they can. And then Paul goes on to show that marriage requires commitment in verses 10 through 16. 10 and 11 say, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but if she but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. I remember reading uh, this passage one of the first times in actually high school. Um, and I would see that where he says, yet not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, uh, but I speak, not the Lord. And I, I got confused, like, what does that mean? Is verse 11 where he says, I don't say this, but the Lord says this. Is this more scripture? And then verse 12 where he says, the Lord doesn't say this, but I, Paul, is that just like kind of friendly advice by Paul? Well, that's not what's going on here. What, what's going on is when Paul says, I don't say this, but the Lord says this, he's talking specifically about quotes and issues that Jesus addresses in his earthly ministry. Jesus, over and over again, speaks on marriage in the Gospels, and he speaks on divorce. And Paul is saying that when the, uh, the, what the Lord says is that he should not put away his wife. The, the Lord says the, the wife should be faithful to her husband. He's mentioning the teachings of Jesus while he was on earth. And Paul's summary is, do not leave your spouse. But Jesus didn't teach on what verse 12 touches. Verse 12 says, okay, well, what happens when two people are married, they're both unbelievers, and then someone gets saved? Now we have a believer and an unbeliever in a marriage. What happens, Paul? Well, Jesus didn't address that in the Gospels, and now Paul is addressing that. And that's all that that's saying. That's saying, look, I don't, you, you know the, the, the Gospel message. You know what Jesus said when he was on earth. I'm just repeating it, and now I'm still giving you the authoritative word of God on this issue. But you don't, you don't see it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You're seeing it here in 1 Corinthians. Does that make sense a little bit? I remember that tripped me up the first time I read it. And Paul says, Paul shows uh, that this teaching that the Lord is giving him, this is God's word, is to be committed. Till death do us part. 
The, the goal, the purpose, the, the end aim is till death do us part. Wherever they are no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Let no man separate. God desires and designed marriage to be a lifelong commitment. So be committed in your marriage. Then he says, marriage requires grace. Paul is addressing those marriages between the unbelievers and the believers, starting in verse 12. And we see scripture, we see, we see in scripture, all throughout scripture actually, that entering into a marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian is wrong. You have two fundamentally opposing directions in life. You have two fundamentally opposite goals of your life. And that's a shaky foundation to build a relationship on, to say the least. But God, in his goodness, creates those marriages all too often when he saves a spouse. Praise God for these marriages. And Paul talks about the, the spouse who gets saved while the other spouse isn't. And the, the Corinthians were, were wondering what to do. do. Do I stay married? Do I leave? Or is this illegitimate marriage now? And Paul says to show grace, be committed, and love them well. Show them Christ. And he says at the end, I believe verse 15, he says, and you may even save them through your life. In verse 16, I believe. But Paul also shows that there is grace. If the unbelieving spouse deserts the believer, verse 15, they are not in bondage. You are not bound to that spouse any longer. And the Bible shows over and over again that God's clear stance against divorce. Divorce is a sin against God, and, and, but, but God knows that life is messy and that people get sinned against to a degree where the vows are broken and they are no longer bound to each other. And if reconciliation is not possible, the biblical grounds for divorce, as, as taught through Scripture, are adultery and abandonment, as we see here. Abandonment can be slightly broad. We see here in this passage a, a cut-and-dry case of abandonment, but we see actions of abandonment that, that break this vow of marriage, such as abuse. And in an abusive situation, the abuser shows themselves to not be acting as a believer in that time, as be acting as an unbeliever, and has functionally abandoned the spouse. So the spouse is, verse 15, no longer bound to that person and should at least get away for their safety. But, but because of God's grace, he, he has these, these ways knowing that we're in a sinful world. But in all this talk of marriage and divorce, Paul is still pastoral and he's still holding out grace. There are no second-class Christians in the church. And if you've, if you've walked through these difficult stages, I hope you see God's grace. I hope you realize that God doesn't want you to live in shame, but in freedom. Freedom found in Christ. 
When you give your life to Christ, he nailed all of your sins to the cross. He promises to return to make every wrong committed against you. He will make that right. If you have sinned, there is grace. If you have been wronged, there is grace. God wants you and he wants me and everyone in here to live a victorious life in him today. And as Paul said, we will forget what is behind us and reach forward to what is ahead, pursuing our goal, the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. So we have to go on. Paul moves on to the second calling that we are to be faithful in, and it's the gift of singleness. And Paul doesn't leave this as an afterthought. Like it feels like it's an afterthought now because I only have six minutes left. Uh, but Paul doesn't leave it as an afterthought. I think it can be easy for us, like Jewish, uh, the Jewish converts in this church, to maybe have a distorted view of unmarried Christians, singles, widows. But throughout, Paul has been eager, throughout the verses, Paul has been eager to say to those who are single, verse 7, Paul, Paul gives the, this, this hyperbole, illustration, and he says, I wish all people were like me. Now, he doesn't literally wish everyone was single, that Christianity would die in a generation, right? He, he, he says, hyperbolically, it is good for you to be like me. I wish all people were single like me. We, we don't know the details, but, but Paul is single at this time. He was probably, most people would say, a widower, he probably had a wife who died, or maybe he was abandoned, or maybe he never had a wife. We don't know the details, but what he does say here is that singleness is a gift. And I know right now we might find it hard to see singleness as a gift, and whatever the circumstance around that singleness might be, but Paul says it is a gift and it is also good. You are not incomplete because you're single. You're not incomplete because you're not married. You are not inferior. And the, the, the main theme here in the passage, verse seven, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and one after that. And he elaborates it in 17 through 24. 17, he says, but as God has distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. And he gives examples, those who are Jewish and circumcised against those who are not. Then he says, those who are slaves against those who are not. What he is illustrating here is your status, whatever that is, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave, free, married, unmarried, your status does not affect God's view of you. You can't earn any more favor or love from God. A modern example is if you are a plumber and you get saved, you don't have to wholesale quit your job and become a pastor the next day. That's not what God is universally demanding of all Christians. Now, he may call you into the ministry, but Paul is saying that that move isn't what earns you favor with God. Well, this move of being married or unmarried does not earn you or disearn you the love of God. You do not have to be married to be a super Christian. Or the other side, uh, contrary to the, 
Catholic Church is teaching, you do not have to be single to be a super Christian. Be faithful to the Lord and the calling that you have. And for those who are single, you are in the middle of a calling that God has for you. So be faithful in that calling. And how can we be faithful? Well, first we realize that singleness requires patience. Again, Paul goes out of his way to show that this is a gift and a calling, not a burden. So don't desperately seek to to get out of your current circumstances, but be patient. He goes on to talk about it is good. It is good for you to desire to be married, but in your pursuit or in your non-pursuit, be patient. Remember that you are not incomplete. God has called you in this season for a purpose. And if you're single and you're pursuing marriage, do not enter into that mode of life lightly. Don't, don't go into it half-heartedly. Again, this is a lifelong commitment that you are going to enter into, making a vow before God. It's not something to be taken lightly. So in your pursuits, focus on you as growing in Christ. Focus on being the right person, not just finding the right person, right? And with that, uh, verse 39 shows the key for someone who, who we need to look for in marriage. Uh, verse 39, the, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband died, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. But then he qualifies it, only in the Lord. You are to look for someone in the Lord, someone who loves the Lord, who is growing in their faith, active in the church, building their life around the word and prayer. I talked to the Sunday school today and I said, ladies, if he can't grow himself, if he can't lead himself spiritually, he can't lead you spiritually. Look for someone who will lead you spiritually. Guys, I don't care how pretty she is, Beauty is vain, charm is deceitful, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Look for godliness. I think you get your money back, sorry. Second, singleness requires urgency. Verses 29 through 30, Paul is saying that time is short and we are all on a mission. Married, single, we're on a mission for God. And we need to realize that we are on a mission for his kingdom. Paul says that, that in this sense, in the sense of the mission, actually single people have an advantage. They can single-mindedly focus on the Lord. Their attention isn't divided. Those who are married need to take care of their spouse's needs, while those who are single can give that much more attention to the work of the Lord. So Paul's message to you who are single, from kids to adults, is do not waste this season. Do not waste this calling that God has given you. Live radically for the family of God. Devote your time to the gospel. Be a missionary in every area of your life. When Lizzie and I were dating in college, I remember having a conversation with her and I said, you know, I love you and I wanna spend the rest of my life with you, but if you dated me, if you dated me, if you dumped me, I wouldn't be too upset because I would just move overseas and be a missionary. That, that would just give me more time to be overseas. 
Um, I'm thankful that Lizzie didn't dump me, thank you. Uh, that would have been a mistake on your part, but no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I hope my mentality was genuine because, because that seems to be the mentality of Paul. Do you sense his urgency here? Do you realize the urgent need of the gospel around us and around the world? All Christians have this duty to, to share in this mission and to live boldly for it. And that's what verse 29 is saying. So take advantage of your time, whether you're married or you're single. Live urgently for the gospel. Don't waste that time. And the last point is the third is this gift requires purity. And the ultimate goal of the Christian life is holiness. We heard that today, right, this morning. The ultimate goal is holiness. It's taking that next step in your walk with Jesus to look more like him. And again and again in this chapter, Paul brings up that purity is essential. Purity is priority. It's of utmost importance. So in everything, in every power, fight temptation, fight for purity. If you're single, fight for that purity. If you're married, help each other fight for that purity. Fight for purity because we have the perfect bridegroom who gave his life for us. We have a God who loves us so much, who is holy, who wants a relationship with us, who wants to spend time with us, who wants us to be holy. So fight for faithfulness in every area of your life. Fight to show off Christ and to share the gospel in your family, in your marriage, in your job, in your sports, in your hobbies, in your school, whatever it is, live for Christ. Give him the glory and make his name known. So uh, as we reflect and Barry comes up, just a couple questions, just 30 seconds of reflection, and then we'll sing. Are you enjoying and making the most out of the gift, the season that the Lord has put you in? Are you praising your Father who gives every good and perfect gift? Are we living with urgency, knowing that time is short? And are we fighting for holiness? So be faithful in your calling, be faithful in your season, and let the Lord use you. So let's maybe reflect for a few seconds and then we can sing a verse. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.